The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Hi, I'm your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to Voice America Variety and World Talk Radio. Uh, some estimates say that more than 40% of Americans making New Year's resolutions, or we're talking to, we're doing multiple, I'm doing the second part of the show first, where am I this morning? <laughs> Uh, Natalie Diaz, we are going to be talking, this is our first guest, not our second guest, Natalie Diaz, what to do when you're having two. Um, did you know that the rate of twin births in the United States has risen by 79% in the last three decades, and a few surprises in life pack a punch quite like the news of expecting multiple babies, not surprised. Parents of twins are often overwhelmed with questions, do we need two of everything, how will we afford this, can we do this ourselves, or do we need help. So joining me this morning is Natalie Diaz, twin mother and founder of the popular website Twiniversity and Multiplicity Magazine and author of What to Do When You're Having Two, the Twin Survival Guide from Pregnancy Through the First Year. Welcome to the show, Natalie. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Good morning to you as well. Yeah, it's been a crazy morning, but uh, I guess it's a, you're used to that as a mother of twins. So uh, I totally am. As the uh, and as the founder of Twinversity or Twiniversity and the director of the Manhattan's Twins Club, mm-hmm. um, you are considered the Twins Guru. So, first question: How and why did you get involved in the Twiniversity movement? Well, you no. Know, when I had my twins, so I, I had my twins back in two thousand and four, and when I was expecting, I found that there was very limited resources for people expecting twins. If you open any magazine, if you look at any parenting book, most, mostly everything was built for singletons. And we're not saying that it's, it's a whole new, you know, arena, but I wanted to read something and I wanted to be able to relate to something that I was going through. And so there's a lot of differences in a multiple birth pregnancy than there are in a singleton pregnancy. So, you know, we deliver earlier, we have more postpartum, there's a lot more pregnancy complications that we have, and I wasn't finding what I needed. So I kind of said to myself when I was expecting, I said, you know what, if nobody organizes the troops on this, when the twins go to kindergarten, I'm going to rally and I'm going to do it. And so that's exactly what happened. On the, on the kid's first day of school, I said, I don't know, what am I going to do with myself? I just freed up my day for, for five hours. So I started Twiniversity, and it's become a global online resource for parents of multiples. As I understand, it's one of the top 100 social media moms Disney has named you as a result of this website. Yes, I'm definitely, I'm definitely doing something right. But I think that I kind of have a leg up on everything because I am my target audience. I know what I needed. I know what I like to, to read. I know the information that I'm looking for. So anything that's kind of prevalent in my life I know is going to be uh, pretty much same across the board for other parents of twins. So, Natalie, you can be very focused and very specific because you know what it is. And you're talking about multiples. Is it just twins or could it be triplets or quadruplets? Or well, 
We have definitely, we have families that have triplets and we have families that have up to quince. So we do have a very large variety of multiples. The, the main group, though, is twins. That's, you know, one in 30 deliveries is a multiple birth. It goes, you know, it, it changes dramatically for, for triplet births and for quad births, of course. There's, there's a needle in the haystack. And well, the is one in 30 are twins. Things. Are you talking about in the United States or is this around the world? No, this is within the United States. And actually in New York City, it's a little bit higher. So here our, our population of twins is even greater. It's, isn't that incredible? Like, I can't remember growing up that I only knew um, one set of twins, and I didn't even meet them until I was in high school. Now there's four sets of twins in my kids' class. Well, I'm assuming I know the answer to that, but you can correct me. Is it because the women are having one of the reasons? Let's mm-hmm. say women are having babies uh, later, so they take uh, um, uh, fertility pills, which I guess could have the potential to cause twin births and even more. Isn't that true? Yes, it is, and so that's one of the factors, but yes. it's not always waiting till you're older. To be honest with you, I was 27 and had to have IVF, so I started trying to have babies when I was 21, and if this was a different day and age, I just wouldn't have had any kids. I think the use of fertility drugs is not only for older people, it's for everybody, but then there's the other, ben- then the, the other reason is, is that people are waiting later in life because of their careers and schooling, and so they're waiting later in life to have babies anyway, and every year that you wait, the chances of you having twins goes higher and higher anyway. So there's, there's all your 20 births. So those are the statistics for having twins. Um, and as you said, the rate is even higher in New York City where you are. Okay, yes. now, okay, so you have twins. I mean, I can think of, obviously, and I'm sure anybody who's listening, if you have two, I mean, it's difficult enough just having one. It's overwhelming when you have your first baby. But... What happens? Let's start from the beginning. Like you had, you were told, were you told? And do you, not, does everybody, I guess today everybody does know that they're having twins um, and probably wasn't true necessarily maybe even 15 years ago, but now we mm-hmm. definitely do know it's going to be twins, right? I mean, with yes. ultrasounds, et cetera. Yeah, usually you find out at about nine weeks when you go in, you know, you miss your period, you go into the doctor, they find out that you're pregnant and they say, you know what, come back in a few weeks and we'll check on the heartbeat. So it's usually around the nine-week mark. So I would say nine to 11 weeks, you go in for an ultrasound, and often, um, in our case, all the time, they see a bonus heartbeat. And so there's a little extra baby in there. And at that moment, for you, what did you feel like? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, it's, it's unbelievable. To be honest with you, I wasn't happy. I really wasn't. I, I wanted one baby. I am a native New Yorker. I live in, on the Lower East Side in a tenement building. I've lived here my whole life. I'm actually fifth generation living in this building. And so I'm like, where am I going to put this kid? Like, I could barely fit one in a New York City apartment. And now we're having two. And my husband's first words out of his mouth were, we have to move. And so now I'm, like, having these, these flashes of, like, running through my mind of, like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? Because since I couldn't get pregnant for so long, I had, like, a vision of what I wanted, you know, my, like my newborn, I wanted to put my baby in a carrier and I wanted to go to museums and I kind of wanted to be like this, this woman of leisure with a baby. And then when you found out that you were having two, you're like, I'm never getting on a subway. We don't even own a car. How are we going to do this? So it's definitely shock and fear was my initial reaction. And then it took some time to kind of ease into it. But So how long did it take? Because, you know, you mentioned some important, like, emotional things, which I think <laughs> we should really focus on for a little bit. Because here you, like you said, you had certain expectations. And maybe when you do IVF or in vitro fertilization, you even feel more 
in certain ways, control of, okay, mm-hmm. I'm doing this, and I've been very specific about what I have to do, and I'm going to have one baby, and you'll be lucky if you have one baby, I guess. It also must go through your mind. So here you are. Now it's two. The emotions yeah. change completely. Shock, fear. Is there any anger or resentment? And then do you feel guilty? And did you feel differently than your spouse or your partner? You know, I always felt angry. I always felt angry that my body had failed me. So for me, I want, you know, I really just thought that Mother Nature was going to hook it up and all I had to go do was have a few glasses of wine and a, you know, a good time and I'd be fine. But it wasn't, I was really frustrated about that. And we tried for our, for our insurance companies to even consider us infertile. We had to be trying for five solid years. So for five solid years, we had to chart our failure. And so I never thought that I would be a mother, ever. I did not think, after five years of failing, I never even thought that I would have one baby. And then to find out that you're having two, I, I can't even begin to tell you. There's, there's no words that it could express how I felt. You know, you want to you be happy. You want to be like, oh, my gosh, it's finally here. I'm so thrilled that I you know that I'm going to be a mom. And then you find out that you're having two, and you're like, wait a second, I didn't sign up for that. So there is... There's a lot of that. And, you know, the, the thing is, is that a lot of times parents won't talk about this. When you're at the park, everybody's like, oh, you know, double blessings and, you know, twice, twice as good. But when we're together, when parents of twins are together, we kind of let the darker side show. And we let the things that really bother us out. And we won't do that within the company of singletons, let's say. Because well, is it always the darkest side? I mean, you use the word darker side and also that word charting failure when you're trying to have a baby. I mean, that's, you know, that kind of is the opposite. It should be like joy and happiness. Exactly. But do you, yeah, I mean, why do you think, and because now you've had a lot of experience, obviously, but why do you think that people try to make this kind of this, this euphemistic stuff and they know themselves if they have one child or even two, not necessarily twins or more, how difficult it is raising children to, like, put that on you. I'm thinking about, oh, how, you know, it's two is better than all that kind of stuff. Where do you mm-hmm. think that comes from? I just think it's kind of the, you know, the more is better mentality. You know, so why not? If it took you this long, you know, maybe, maybe you're making up for lost time. So it was, it was very exciting. And once you come out, I would say after the first year, you see that everything was right. It is twice, it, you know, it's a blessing tenfold. Words cannot even describe to you how I re- kind of regret feeling that way when I look at my kids now. My kids just turned nine on Monday. So we had this, this double birthday, and it's actually a triple birthday in our home because they were born on my husband's birthday. So I'm the, I'm the only Diaz that was not born on December 16th. <laughs> But you gave but, birth to the other two Diaz's. <laughs> yes, I, I, I claim those as my own, but we went to dinner and I was with my mother-in-law and I was telling her, I was like, you know, this day really should be about us. They did nothing. Those three did nothing for this day. Me and you busted our butts and so today, so we had a, a little toast to my mother-in-law and I just to, to acknowledge our, our Libra day. Well, congratulations. But, you know, thank you. But looking back, like I look at them now and I always say, like, what if there was one? Which one would it have been? You know, so I have that go through my mind. I say, how could I ever say, like, that I was disappointed with two? What if there was only one? I would have never known the other. And they're so amazing. And they're so unique. They're, they're you know, they have nothing in common, but they're both Are they identical twin, twins or fraternal twins? No, they're, they're boy-girl fraternal twins. They don't, they look nothing alike. 
My son is about nine inches taller than my daughter. My daughter is a flaming redhead with curls and blue eyes, and my son looks more Italian like my heritage. So nobody even thinks that they're twins anymore. In the beginning, you know, when, <clears throat> excuse me, when you see the double stroller, everybody gets it, but now they just figure that, you know, he's 11. And yeah, they're nine is. months apart. <clears throat> yeah, it's unbelievable. It really is. But, I, you know, I feel bad that I felt all that in the beginning, but I kind of wanted to get that out there which is kind of another thing with Twin Diversity is that there's always things that I wanted to talk about that my friends with, that didn't have twins just didn't get. And I'm not saying that I feel that I don't empathize with my friend whose one baby isn't sleeping, but it's hard for me to hear you complain about your one baby when I have two babies that aren't sleeping and two babies that I'm trying to potty train and, you know, two babies that you're trying to breastfeed in the beginning. It was so difficult. I needed to kind of be in a community that had people that were in the trenches with me. And so that's where Twiniversity came into play. Tell me about the twin. I want to get real specific here because, I mean, sure. and you have a list of things that, you know, are different when you have twins. One of them is the breastfeeding, and breastfeeding is a big thing. And I'm a big, bre- I mean, my kids are grown, but big breastfeeders, and I always did it till they were two years old, but I only had one, but it, I was always exhausted. So how yeah. do you breastfeed two babies at the same time? Well, you know, there's a lot of tips and tricks that you could you pick up along the way, and the good thing is is that practice makes perfect, and you get plenty of opportunities to practice. But, you know, we strongly encourage that parents of twins tandem breastfeed just to keep everybody on the same schedule because if you feed them one at a time, you're going to be feeding babies all day long, 24 hours a day. And, you know, I'm not pro, I'm not on a soapbox about pro-breastfeeding, and I'm not anti-breastfeeding. I'm very pro-mom. And I think, I I hope that there could be more people that understand that. And I know sometimes people say, you know, you don't really push moms to breastfeed. And I don't push moms to do anything because I can't walk in their shoes. So whenever I'm speaking to a family, you know, I will encourage you. I will be the first person, you know, at the finish line waiting for you and cheering you on every step of the way. But with me, with my personal breastfeeding experience, I feel like that actually led to a lot of my postpartum depression because I was breastfeeding around the clock and I wasn't getting any sleep and they weren't on a schedule and I was up 22 hours a day, you know, trying to feed a baby. It was, it was crazy. What kind of and help so did you I, get? Do you get help from your husband or from mothers or mother-in-law? I mean, you must have had some help. You can't do two babies alone. I, absolutely. I have a wonderful giant family and everybody was here to help, but they could only help so much, especially with breastfeeding. It's not, you know, they couldn't really help me too much with that, but I smartened up pretty quick and I started pumping exclusively so that we could always see the, the babies would have the breast milk, but they would drink it from a bottle so somebody could hold another baby. And it wasn't as overwhelming to me. And this is also because my babies were preemies. So it was so difficult to breastfeed and have premature babies and, you know, you're in the NICU and the lactation consultants are trying to you know, to teach you and they're not latching correctly. It was so stressful. It was so stressful. And thank goodness that, you know, the lactation consultant there is like, Nat, listen, not saying throw in the towel, but maybe just trying pumping and seeing how that works. And it was, it made a huge difference in the first few months of my baby's life. So I was able to kind of give them what they needed and I was able to, to kind of grab some sanity back, thank goodness. Yeah. Well, grab some sanity back and take care of yourself, I think, is obviously key for moms, really key. 
Um, and unfortunately, as you're saying, you had to learn it going through postpartum depression. But I was thinking, you know, of something else. You know, people say, well, okay, you have, I asked you the question actually, do you have support from whomever? And you said, yes, a big family. But can't that also get exhausting? Because even though people are there to help you, you don't have mm-hmm. your privacy. It's enervating to have people around, no matter how much you love them and how yeah. much they want to help. They're kind of invading your home territory. Oh, it's, it's very, very challenging. And, I, it's actually a whole chapter in the book. So there's a chapter in the book just says, you know, help me please somebody and kind of how to, how to get the help that you need, the right amount of help that you need. Because when family comes over, they're not always helpful. You know, if you live out of state from your parents and your parents, you know, fly in to help you for the first few weeks or, you know, even days, whatever it is. But if you have one parent who needs to be taken care of by the other parent, nobody's really helping you. You know, if your dad's the type of guy that says, honey, make me a sandwich, your mom's not going to be able to be there 100% for you because she's still have, going to have to take care of your dad. Yeah. So it's finding the right people that can actually help. It's never turning down anybody who offers to help. If it's a coworker, if it's somebody from church, if it's somebody from a volunteer organization that you're with, anybody who says, please, let me, you know, I'd love to come over and see the baby. You really, I know a lot of people laugh about it, but you have to get their number and you have to make sure that you call them. And, you come and up Natalie, with do you think sometimes it's people that you least expect? Maybe it's somebody you're not so close to. Maybe they are, like, as you say, a coworker. I mean, I know yeah. people just when I'm cooking or you're cooking a big meal and family and friends are there, there are some people who are helpful and other people who go into your kitchen and the, where's the mm-hmm. fork, where's the knife, where's the, well, that's not helpful because I'm doing double duty, right? Which yeah. I'm identifying, I mean, it's not exactly the same thing, but you never know who that no, person but, is. but it is. But you know what it is? It, it, it's the people who could kind of take charge, and they don't need to be held by the hand. Those are the people that you need. And I always encourage parents to make a chore chart or a chart of things that have to be done. So when people come over, if you don't feel comfortable telling your mother-in-law, you know, would you mind unloading the dishwasher? You could always say anything on that list would be helpful. You know, and it could be throwing in a load of wash, could you, you know, making a pot of soup, unloading the dishwasher, you know, putting fresh towels in the bathroom, whatever it is, make a chart so that you don't have to feel bad asking them. And when people come over and they say, can I bring you anything? Never say no. Always say yes. Chinese food sounds great. Or, you know, we could definitely use another pack of diapers. People really do want to help. They really do. So let them, let them help as much as they possibly can. Dealing with postpartum depression, how did you do that, and how long did it last? Uh, You know, I didn't even know that I was dealing with it. I have to tell you, I was in in this fog, and I just thought that that's what a new mother felt like. Since I had, you know, no previous experience with motherhood, I can tell you when I delivered at 34 weeks on the day, I didn't get to see the babies for almost two days. So I had a very bad delivery. I was in recovery for an extended period of time, and when I finally got to a room, I can remember I told my sister, I said, we have to go. We have to leave. And my sister's like, what are you talking about? You know, the babies are in the NICU. We have to go downstairs. And I said, no. I said, I can't do it. We have to, we have to go. And my sister, God bless her. I, I, can't, I can't even tell you how I, that, I dedicated my entire book to her. Uh. But she said, okay, let's go. She's like, where do you want to go? She's like, well, we right now. She's like, I have cash and a credit card. I was in pajamas. I didn't even have shoes. But she was like, she didn't even know what to do for me. But she knew that fighting with me wasn't going to do, wasn't going to help anybody. So by her kind of saying, okay, let's go, it made me check myself and say, well, where am I going? 
where do I think I'm going to go? You know, my babies need me. And I have to go downstairs. I hadn't even met them yet. And I was already experiencing this very deep depression. But, you know, I think it had to do a lot with the traumatic delivery. Once again, I felt that my body had failed me because I had preeclampsia. So the babies were blissfully unaware, as the doctors kept telling me. And so I'm like, you know, I just I went to hell in a handbasket. And I just felt horrible. And so once I met them, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I started to feel a lot better once I saw them. But I would say the first three months, I felt like I was underwater. And I just couldn't get to the top no matter how much I swam. So at and what point was, did you catch you know, your breath? You were, at what point were you able to say, I mean, was there a turning point was there that you could... Or was it just an evolution? Or is there some point that when you're giving advice to, say, other mothers who have twins, you could say, well, you know, in your experience, and everybody's experience I know is different, but was there a Mm -hmm. point where you could take a deep breath? Yes. There was a point, and it was all my husband. It was 100% my husband. My husband said, Nat, you have to get out of the house. You have to do something for yourself. And so he, he literally threw me out of the house. He's like, I got the kids. Don't worry about anything. You go out. And so I went to the movies. I went to the movies by myself, and I even wrote it in the book. It's called My Memoirs of a Geisha Moment. And I sat there in the dark. I can't even tell you what the movie was about, but I just sat there by myself, and I cried in the movie theater, but I had a moment of peace. And there wasn't somebody saying, you know, what should I do when there wasn't a baby crying, and I didn't feel like I was being pulled in 15 directions. It was a huge turning point for me. And so, and so when, I, when I talk, you know, because I teach university classes in New York City, so the whole book is based off of the curriculum of my classes. And when I talk about postpartum, I actually speak much more to the dads than I do to the moms because the moms, it's a chemical thing. There's not much that we could change. This is a chemical imbalance that we have. You know, we have these baby blues. It's going to take a moment for us to get regulated. But the dads could do something. You know, the dads could say, listen, get out of the house. Go take a walk, get some fresh air, go take a a nice long bath. I got everything covered. But, you know, a lot of times moms won't say, I need you to do this for me because that's not the way that we are. A lot of people are like, you know, we're going to do this. These are our babies. I'm going to take care of them. You get get this mama bear mentality and you want to do everything. But somebody has to say, no, you got to pull the plug. You got to say, go take a breath. And so I always speak to the dads, and I always tell the dads, too, if you are having a hard time approaching your wife, you call me. So they call me, and I will call their wife and say, listen, we're all concerned about you. Here's what I, like, you know, you want to meet on Tuesday for a cup of coffee? And you just need to kind of get it out there, and you need to vent. And I had nobody to talk to. And so I felt really, really trapped. And and it was isolated. It It sounds like isolated. uh, and plus, they were born in, uh, in December, so it was bitterly cold outside. I couldn't go out if I wanted to. My kids were in the NICU for a month, and I'm going back and forth, and then I had one baby home and one baby in the NICU. So it's not a surprise that this happened. I'm really not shocked that I had postpartum, but I am surprised that I did not recognize it. But like I said, you know, I never had a baby before, so I just thought that's what every new mother felt. Yeah. And, and, really, rather, and Natalie, isn't it rather insidious because you talk about even just trying to get pregnant and the IVF mm-hmm. and the in vitro and, you know, uh, charting failure, that, that phrase that you use. I mean, so you were kind of used to feeling, it would seem to be kind of bad in terms of getting pregnant, having the baby, going through. So, you, you know, you, it, it, it is insidious, so you're not used to having yeah. good feelings necessarily or expecting them. 
No, I, I definitely wasn't. It was it was really tough. And I, I swear to you, when I was when I was going through that, I, I did not really think much about other people. I just worried about myself and my babies. But once I came out of the cloud and I realized that other people could possibly feel this way, I had to get on a soapbox. I was like, I went to the Manhattan Twin Clubs meetings and, you know, I started, uh, became the director of them in 2005. And I was like, nobody's going to be alone. That's it. No more feeling alone. You're going to know who I am. You're going to know my name. You're going to call me when you need me. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I am here for you. And I am not a social worker. I am not a therapist. But I am unfortunately somebody who has been there. And I have been to the lowest point of this. And this is supposed to be the happiest time in your life. Well, since we only have have a few minutes left, I want you, if you can, I've asked you about defining moments, but what's the defining moment? Because we started the show with you telling me you have these two beautiful, beautiful nine-year-olds, a son and a daughter. At what point did kind of all of this lift after, let's say, you were able to go out, you went to the movies by yourself and kind Mm -hmm. of a cathartic experience? Like when you started saying, I really, this feels good, I'm enjoying these babies and my husband, and, or was it just kind of a process? It was definitely a process. There wasn't a day that I, you know, that I, that kind of changed everything for me. There were good days and there were bad days. And then once they st- there started to be more good days, I would say probably around nine months, there started to be a lot more good days than bad days. It just really shifted and I realized just how lucky I was. And I would do silly things with them. I would make them have fake wrestling matches. And if you could imagine like two infant blobs, you know, two nine-month-olds, I made up wrestling names for them because I was all by myself in the house and I was bored. So I had these moments with them that uh, it just felt so great. And I didn't feel like I was alone. I felt like I had a team. It wasn't even that it was me and my baby against the world. It was me and my little pack. And we're going to go to the pack, you know, we're going to go to the Bronx Zoo together. And I really, I changed my whole outlook. And I said, I'm tired of worrying if I could sit down the aisle of a drugstore. I'm going. And if I have to barrel through, I'm going to. And then I found out that the American Disabilities Act says that store aisles have to be a certain width for wheelchairs. That meant that I could sit down every aisle with my double stroller. So if I went to, you know, a Walgreens or whatever and the display was in the aisle, I barrel through and I moved the display and then I went to complain to the manager. <laughs> and I said, you know, you're in violation of a federal act here. And they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. So we, I made the city fit me and I wasn't worried as much about, you know, what am I going to do and how am I going to live in this tiny apartment? We still live in the tiny apartment. My grandmother was still alive, uh, God rest her soul, when the babies were born, and she put me, uh, she definitely put me in my place, and she's like, Nat, I raised seven kids in half the size of your apartment. Your mother slept in a drawer. I gave birth to your aunt in your living room right now that I'm living room, that I'm living in. And I'm like, how could I possibly say anything? How could I complain? She's right. And so I kind of just, I would say that nine-month turnaround And I decided that that was it. It was only going to be, you know, puppy dogs, unicorns, and and kittens. And it just, it it turned around for me, thank goodness. Well, Nat, you are definitely an inspiration to other women. I mean, you know, I I really 
I, I don't know what to say, but sing your praises and also uh, promote your book because the, the name of the book, when What to Do When You're Having Two, The Twin Survival Guide from Pregnancy Through the First Year, I think says it all. We've talked a little bit about what's in the book, but there's also a lot more, and also the website because that's important as well. Yeah. So um, let's direct everybody to where they can go to the website and how they can get involved if anybody's listening who has sure. twins or has friends well, or family who have twins. Oh, absolutely. We have a plenty of grandmothers and aunts that are part of our group that say, you know, how could I help my family member? Um, people come from, you know, if you have a coworker that's expecting twins, they use us as a resource. So it's just twinaversity.com. And we're also on Facebook. We have a very, very active Facebook group. I think we're over 15,000 on Facebook alone. And that's just facebook.com slash twinaversity. And we're on Twitter and Instagram and, and every social media outlet that you can imagine. But our goal really is to be there and support families of multiple throughout the globe. And right now, Twiniversity is sitting on about 80,000 families in 110 countries. So, you know, like the movie Field of Dreams, if you build it, they will come. Mm-hmm. Somebody just needed to do this, and I'm honored that it was me that started yeah. this group. Fantastic. Thanks. Natalie Diaz, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. You are so welcome. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. Yep, you too. We are going to take a short break, and uh, we'll be back in a few minutes. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to Voice America Variety and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for the keywords World Talk Radio. Once you're a part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the World Talk Radio network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support you. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and we're back, and you're listening to Voice America Variety at World Talk Radio. Um, 
some estimates say that more than 40% of Americans make New Year's resolutions. 40%, that's a lot of Americans making New Year's resolutions. But unfortunately, and I'm, most people won't be surprised by this, I don't think, only a tiny fraction of us actually keep our resolutions. In fact, according to some studies, only 8% of people actually achieve their New Year's goals. Not very many. There are many reasons experts say we don't achieve our resolutions. One being that the goals set are too overwhelming. Too overwhelming. So what can you do to avoid feeling disappointed by the middle of January? Joining me this morning to answer this question is Karen Amster Young, freelance writer, marketing and public relations veteran and author of, and this is her new book, 52 Weeks, Two Women and Their Quest to Get Unstuck with Stories and Ideas to Jumpstart Your Year of of Discovery. Welcome to the show. Karen, nice to have you on this morning. Thank you. So happy to be here. Great to have you. So according to you, you're a co-author, because you do have a co-author, friends and uh, other people of the 52 Weeks, um, It's not about writing down a list of New Year's resolutions, because that doesn't seem to work, (laughs) right? Um, It's more than that. It's about doing new things and growing. Um, And so I think I'm quoting you or your co-author. So what does that mean? Well, you know, most of all, you need to remember to have fun. And I think that people don't realize that when they, yes, they should put down, we call it the 52-week mindset. Um, making sure you take time for yourself, carve out time, which particularly in, women in particular have a very hard time with that. They always feel guilty um, when there's no end goal. In fact, unlike resolutions, when you carve out time to have fun, there is no purpose or end goal other than to have fun. But the results are you're happier, therefore your significant other or spouse is happier, your children are happier, and you feel better. Um, and one thing often leads, leads to another. So if you're one of the things I did was, you know, sign up for dance lessons with my husband, which I know might not sound that earth-shattering, <laughs> but when you walk into a dance class and then all of a sudden you're meeting new people and one of those people might lead to a new job interview or um, a new best friend. Um, so it's it's this kind of momentum. My co-author and I, we were not doing this specifically for New Year's. Um, it all started, I think, in the middle of a winter a couple of years ago where we both felt very kind of stuck or restless and wanted to take time again for ourselves. And we were so busy making plans for our children and not for ourselves. And we kind of had lost sight of that. In other words, you're talking about it's not necessarily making a New Year's resolution. I think you say don't actually try not to call it resolutions because this is something you could be doing 52 weeks of the year. But you're saying that you actually, you felt, I hear you saying you felt stuck kind of, like now where I'm like, I need to do something different. I need, I'm not getting, I, I don't know if happy's the word, but it, things aren't, I'm, I'm at a plateau. So yeah, we, we need we to had, make change. Exactly. I mean, we, we had just started feeling like we, I was dropping off my daughter uh, at a school that was literally next to the, you know, one of the most famous museums in the world, the Guggenheim Museum. For two years, I was dropping her off right next to it and wasn't going inside. And, you know, we often live in, you know, we can live in a major city or a small town and we don't even take time to explore it or get out of our zip codes. Um, and I think people, that's what, you know, makes you start feeling like you're not moving forward. And too many people write down goals such as lose weight, get a new job instead of find a new exercise class that I like or, you know, find, a, find something I'm passionate about and then explore that as a new career. Um, so it, it's really kind of rephrasing um, and re, um, 
reevaluating, you know, what it is that you want, of course, but also rephrasing and, and not even thinking of them as goals. Um, and I think that's the critical distinction. Well, are you talking about getting out of your routine because we become routinized? And I'm picturing you taking <laughs> your daughter to her school with right. the Guggenheim there. And yeah, I can understand that. I mean, even though people would say, my goodness, why wouldn't you just, you know, well, because walk across I, the I street? know it's, it's, I'm, I'm not complaining about that. I'm complaining only in the sense I was mad at myself. I was, I was always thinking about my to-do list, you know, go to the supermarket, go to the drugstore, all the things that we all have to do, whether you live in an exciting city or you live in a small town. Um, it, and they're all, there's all things to do in every city, in every place, and we just get so caught up with our day-to-day responsibilities. And it's, you know, we, many of us, we all work and we have to pay the bills, but it, we say, my co-author and I, that it's 10 minutes, 10 hours, or 10 days, whatever you decide to do, it, there, even for 10 minutes, it can make a difference. Um, and, that, and that's also important because people get overwhelmed and paralyzed thinking, oh, I want to start running, but I don't, you know, you don't have to run, run a marathon. You don't have to travel the world. It's how do you get that, those benefits on a small budget or a little time, and, yep. and there's ways to do that. So take baby steps. I mean, learn something new, but it doesn't have to mean that you have to go to Dubai on vacation. <laughs> right. <You> could, <laughs> uh, I, I, I get it. I understand that. But it's true. We do get hooked into, I have to, loo- I have to lose 30 pounds by February 2nd or whatever right. it is. Right. And you haven't lost, you know, or you haven't lost 10 pounds in 10 years, so if you, we'll be using the 10s. So why would <laughs> you think you're going to be able to lose 10 pounds by you know, a certain date. It doesn't make sense. But what you're saying, I guess, is if you do things that will maybe think more globally, if you start exercising with a friend or going someplace, you know, and it's more doing managing things. It. Yeah. It's managing it in small steps. I mean, I was also in a very big rut in terms of my breakfast choices or my eating choices in terms of reaching and craving too often things like the carbohydrates and the more quote-unquote unhealthier, you know, who doesn't want the bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich on, the, on, on various mornings? <laughs> <laughs> At least I did. So yes. I wrote one essay that's in, that was from the blog originally that's included in the book, um, and it was a blueberry experiment because I was constantly buying these um, wonderful-looking organic blueberries and not eating them, and they would be taunting me in my refrigerator, and I would end up throwing them out by the end of the week. So, I mean, it was a bit of a tongue-in-cheek piece, but I started by putting blueberries on a bagel with cream cheese. And then, <laughs> and then by the end of the week, um, you know, I was kind of on the go, you know, to the gym 15 minutes earlier, grabbing a handful of blueberries and a granola bar. So it was, it was a one-week experiment, but then, of course, you hope to decide what you need to incorporate on a regular basis in your life. Um, but it gives you the confidence to kind of take a larger step. And look, to make it change, you know, it, yeah. uh, well, what you're saying is really important. I mean, it sounds um, maybe out of context. It doesn't mm-hmm. sound important, but when you're talking about, like, if you're used to having the bagel with cream cheese and <laughs> something else, and you just change it from a bagel to something else, maybe a piece of, uh, you know, sourdough bread. Well, that and was you- my fun approach to kind of incorporating uh, blueberries, which have all these benefits into my yeah. diet. But, you know, for many people, look, our book is divided into 10 chapters that cover all areas of your life, whether it's relationships, um, giving back and volunteering and reflection and wellness. So, look, you know, many of my friends, you know, they really kind of have the exercise and diet thing down. So they might skip that chapter, but they're certainly maybe stuck in, uh, relationships, or maybe they haven't volunteered in a long time, and there are many health benefits to well, volunteering. Well, let's take two of those, because I, I think those are important, relationships okay. and volunteering, okay. and a lot of people can identify with that. So right. relationships, okay, what do we do about our relationships? 
Well, there's, you know, it's not just even with your spouses, um, which for me was a focus. It was to kind of, you know, we often, as you've heard before, take for granted the people we love the most and or, you know, that we are with every day. So, you know, that I'll talk about in a moment. But even with siblings and friends, I mean, it's kind of reevaluating and saying to yourself, you know, which are these relationships that I want to keep in my life? And I don't mean it to sound drastic, but and we, who haven't I seen or spent time with who I want to nurture those relationships? And sometimes it's just picking up the phone. Maybe you can't go to visit, you know, go to Chicago to visit your college roommate, but maybe you see, you know, other than a quick text message really haven't sent a card or it sounds hokey but it's true or really everything needs a little nurturing if you're going to have any any progress or success and forget about goals even though I'm using progress and success in my you know in my language here I'm saying you'll be you'll feel better because if there's somebody you know by nurturing those relationships it's been proven you know we all need friends and family in our life and often those go by the wayside too when you get so busy um, so that's that's really important you know and then Oh, yeah, nurturing the relationships as well as maybe letting go of relationships that aren't good for you. Yes, and we have experts in the book, and Dr. Helen Fisher, who's a renowned author and, and also in the New York Times frequently. Yeah. Um, she Isn't talks, she at Rutgers? Yeah, I, yes, correct. Um, yeah. She talks about how women in particular have a very hard time ending you know, what she calls toxic friendships. Um, uh, toxic friendship, breaking up with a girlfriend, you know, as, as, a, as a woman, is, it could be very difficult. Um, yeah. And she's not encouraging that. But if it's not working for you anymore, for example, if, if you really are making changes in your life um, to improve your health and well-being, and you have a girlfriend who's constantly over, overindulging, you know, it just might not be the right person for this time in your life. Um, and, you know, she talks a lot about that and, and have, surrounding yourself with people who, of course, have positive um, you know, kind of share your interests at the time and have positive influence in your life. It's very yeah, important. And I, I think that is important, and I, obviously you cover this in the book, but, uh, you know, just to reiterate that, because I think different people at different stages of your life are important to you, and perhaps as one, just as it is, I mean, when they talk about people who get divorced, but it works the same as you're saying with girlfriends. Maybe, you know, the girlfriend who was a friend of yours when you were had kids and you were at home is not the same girlfriend you want once your kids are in school and you are kind of exploring another world, and so you have to let go. Yeah, and they're not, maybe they're not supportive, or, and there might be other things going on there, or, or they're, you know, you're finding yourself not, you know, being going places and doing things that really aren't part of who you want to be or who you are anymore. And that's important to think about. It's kind of like a cleansing, <laughs> you know, people. And, I, and I, if it sounds too harsh, you know, there's also the, the mindset of, you know, compartmentalizing friendships. You know, maybe there's the friend that you play tennis with or maybe there's the, the girlfriend that you would call if you're thrown a curveball in life and, you know, different friends for different reasons. And, and that could make you just feel better overall instead of spending time where you don't, need or want to spend time. Let's talk about volunteering, because mm. I think all intuitively know that we feel good when we volunteer, but many, people, many of us have excuses. I work too hard. I have too much on my plate. I can't volunteer. I, you know, I can donate some money here and there, which is fine, too, but right. the whole concept of volunteering, it does make you feel good, and, and so I think, and you can do it, there's just so many opportunities to do it in so many different Venues, I mean, and yes, and 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 I, the ten minutes, ten hours, ten days. I want to stress that because, you know, you could send you know soup to a, a neighbor who's not well. You can help an elderly uh, neighbor as well, and that's not necessarily this big commitment. You know, it could take a very short amount of time, and it's and it's you know it goes back to helping your neighbor, um, and that is 
that is helping, and it, and there's medical proof that that it's good for your health. <laughs> it, it has it has benefits um, uh, for you. Uh, so you know there there's that, and then also volunteering when you're not happy in your career is really critical. Our career experts talk about. Um, you know, exploring, volunteering, so then you get those benefits, but that it could lead to a new passion um, and, and actually, you know, jumpstart um, a new career for you. So yeah, and there was just an editorial, I think, on Sunday in the New York Times about that, that the oh. things that make people happy, what the, what the number one thing that makes people happy is their job. And it's not necessarily a doctor or a lawyer or making a lot of money. They can be what we, you know, it, they can be any, any job. I mean, yes. and, but it, that's what kind of makes, generally speaking, people happier than anything else that they do. It's not how much money they make or how much prestige they get from the job. So it kind of fits into what you're saying. Yes. Which, yeah. And there's career assessment in our book as well as on our website um, from our experts and other so- sources. There's a few worksheets about, you know, on your career assessment skills. You know, because if you are in a position or a job that is not utilizing the areas of that you're not, you know, naturally talented in, as well as those that you're drawn to, you're ultimately not going to enjoy going to work. Um, so um, you might, you know, if you have a little time, even on the weekend, to kind of reassess what those skills are and what you prefer to be doing, or start dabbling by volunteering or going to lectures and things like that on your free time, you could really find new passions. One of the other things that you mentioned in the book is smile more. People say, oh, smile more, big deal. How's that going to make? What's that going to do for me? <laughs> you know, well, you know, it, you fake it till you make it. Um, your body actually can. I think, it, I think we talk about this in the book. You cannot feel anxious or fearful if, when you smile, when your body is having that physical reaction to being laughing. You can simultaneously feel scared and uh, anxious at the same time. So sometimes there is something to be said. You will feel how you act. So if you smile more, um, all of a sudden you'll stop thinking about it and you'll realize that, oh, well, it's making me feel better today. Um, so there is, I'm not an, a doctor, but there is medical, there is proof that that actually works. Um, we forget to laugh. We forget to have fun. I know I personally love comedy shows. I remember one day, and I write about this in the book, I walked into a nail salon. A dear, dear friend had just passed away, and I'm Please don't, you know, I'm not saying that one good laugh, you know, took away that grief, but I'll never forget this man came in the salon, which at this particular salon was, you know, unusual for a big burly guy to walk in, and he just, his whole energy lit up the room, and he started talking, and at first I thought he was maybe a little crazy, but then he started just, it was like a stand-up comedy routine in the nail salon, and everybody's mood shifted, you know, and, and I remember thinking how important it was, you know, to laugh, and we forget to. So if you have to rent your favorite movie, um, funny movie, go to a comedy show. Um, children laugh an average of, a four-year-old laughs an average of 300 to 400 times a day, and an adult only four. Um, so that's pretty amazing. That is a staggering statistic and yeah. not in the right direction. We really <laughs> cut ourselves off. Well, I know myself, you know, I don't have time to laugh. I don't have time. I've got to do this first, right? I have things I have to accomplish, things I have to do. Then I'll relax and, and enjoy and take time to 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 laugh or to smile, like you say, but the external impacts on the internal. We always think about you have to, you know, you go into therapy, you, you meditate, and then you'll be happy. But like you say, you can start with just the smile will impact yes. it. And, and you're right, experts do say that yes. you release these kinds of chemicals in exactly. your brain mm-hmm. that are stress-relieving when you smile as opposed to when you're angry or aggressive or mean. 
Yes. So for the 52 weeks, and that gets back to what do we mean by a 52-week list, um, you know, there, of course, there could be activities such as test driving sports cars, which I did, and taking uh, new drawing classes, and my, my co-author went rock climbing and went to a shooting range, and those are very specific kind of adrenaline-inducing activities. But then eating blueberries for one week or just smiling more, it, is, it, it might sound a little crazy, but we had those type of things on our list, and it really makes a difference because there may be more internal things that you're working on, and, and even if you don't have time to go take an afternoon off and go test drive Maseratis like I did. Um, you know, maybe that week I had to choose, you know, one of the more, the simple, one of the 10-minute ones. Um, and, and that's fine, you know, and that's, that's the difference. I, I think the importance of your book is, and I think this is really important, is that you can just, you, these small things or what are seemingly small things in all the categories that seemingly you mentioned, there are more correct. obviously a lot more categories in the book. People have to go buy the book, to, um, the 52 weeks, but... Um, it doesn't have to be this huge leap. And I think just culturally, we as Americans seem to think it has to be a huge deal if we are going to change our behavior. And it doesn't. Just the small things, like I think you said in the beginning of the interview, kind of morph into new things. If you yes. just go to a different restaurant than you go to every Saturday for right. lunch. Right. That's exactly what we're saying. And I think that when I look back, I think, and I don't even have to look back that far, I'm very hard Personally, I'm extremely hard on myself, so I would forget to pat myself uh, on the back for small accomplishments. So I would think if I'm, you know, starting taking up running, like I said before, I would have to train for a marathon. And when you change that mindset, um, you really are a lot happier. Not only are you accepting yourself more for who you are, but you're also realizing that, you know what, so I did 20 minutes today at the gym. That's great. And it's better than zero minutes at the gym. <laughs> so, and, and I, you know, so there are personalities, I'm sure there are many others out there like me, that if you want to do something 120%, you know, and that's the only way you'll do it. Um, yeah, that's but a good example. I mean, I walk every day. I mean, anybody who listens to my show, I say it ad nauseum, but I walk every day, four miles a day, uh, So, but some days I can't, and I would get into the mindset, as you are describing, well, I can't walk four miles, so I can't walk. Well, how about I could walk one mile? I have time for that. That's exactly. better. Yeah. But I'm also, okay. gonna, I'm also going to give you a little tough love, Catherine, and say yeah. that um, if, you know, my girlfriends like you who, you know, go to the same Pilates class every day or walking those four miles every day, you know, one week you should say, you know, I'm going to try this new, um, you know, whatever would take the same amount of time as those four miles, but maybe I'm going to take Pilates or maybe I'm going to, you know, run, you know, run it, whatever it is, something different, um, just to shake it up a little bit. And you may not love it, or you may say, you know, now I'm going to alternate. I'm going to walk four miles today. Tomorrow I'm going to take that class again and you know there is something to be said because we we are even our bodies get very used to the same routines so the benefits start decreasing you know in that way you know what yeah, I'm you're saying? absolutely so, right and you know what i will take your advice i mean you know <laughs> i know you're right as a matter of fact yesterday on another show i was interviewing a uh, orthopedist and he talked about the fact that first of all you shouldn't be doing the same sport all the time right. because you're always using the same joints and the same muscles and it's a wear and tear you need to physically even do different things. And you're talking about emotionally as well. So combining the two, okay, no more four miles every day, I guess. Yeah. Well, no, well, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm half joking. But, you know, and then I'll go to the other extreme. You know, there was a period in my life a few years ago where um, for what, 
personal reasons going on and, you know, a lot of, I was feeling anxious. Not everyone is prone to that type of anxiety, but I was, and I had stopped going to the gym. And I remember, you know, a good friend saying, just go for 10 minutes. I mean, this is like all these things percolating for the book, you know, years in advance, because even if, if you don't feel right after 10 minutes, so you leave, you know, you know, because I, this is, I, I would normally do like an hour and, you know, on the machine or whatever. And, and she was absolutely right. Because if you know, you have that escape hatch and this is for the other extreme, like I said, for the person who the four miles sounds like four mountains, uh, you know, yeah. go for that 10 minutes because you'll start, you know, you'll start feeling better and you'll know that you could do it and it builds your confidence, whether for mental health reasons or physical reasons or whatever, emotional reasons, you have not been able to go, say to yourself five minutes or 10 minutes. And I think that's really important for some people. Yeah, which is part of the, uh, actually the title of your book, uh, get unstuck. You're not stuck I mean that word stuck. You're not stuck <laughs> in doing. You don't have. No one's going to be chaining you to the 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 work of the machine at the gym. You don't have. Right. You don't have to stay. You don't right. have to walk the four miles. Um, if you don't like the restaurant, have a cup of coffee and leave. But <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah. No. So I think you know we're hitting upon a lot of really important things and and. Um, you know, that's what I say. I really think that even the way the book is designed, like I said, you can skip around. You don't, it's not a front-to-back read. Um, it, it could be, but, you know, if, you're, if you don't have time, <laughs> you certainly could just go to the chapters that are relevant for you. Um, and there's also quotes and, you know, aphorisms and, you know, other little quick, inspiring things as we run around. Everybody's so busy, right? Right, exactly. All right, so we have about a minute. We have a minute left. We do have to leave the show. But, okay, website, where we can go to. 52 Weeks, Two Women and Their Quest to Get Unstuck with Stories and Ideas to Jumpstart Your Year of Discovery. It's a year <laughs> of discovery. Okay, so where do we go to get more information about you, about the book, and about what you're doing? Well, it's the 52weeks.com, as I think you said, and it's numeric 5-2, so the 52weeks.com. And our book is available on all the major retailer, you know, um, all the major bookseller websites, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, com, um, hopefully your local bookstore, and um, and there's more information on the website so um, about us and the book and things you can download without buying the book. So I hope um, you know I hope uh, people can be more inspired and motivated by 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 the, by the 52 weeks. Fantastic. Thanks, Karen and Love Young. Thanks for being you. on the show this morning. Thank you so much. Great talking to you. you Very too. inspiring. Thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the show. Have a great week, and uh, we will see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.